If you will, please stand with me at the reading of God's very word, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 10 and go through chapter 7, verse 14. After we're done, we're going to look very closely at these verses. So I want to invite you to leave your Bibles open as we go to God's very word. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better Then laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or pleasure. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools." This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You may be seated. This passage before us this morning, is it only seems like it is a random collection of Proverbs. Our passage actually is answering two simple questions, and you can fix your eyes on those questions in verse 12 of chapter 6. Here it is. Here's the passage. Number one, what is good? You see that? Number Two, who knows? What is good and who knows? Who knows what will be after man and what advantage is there? 
these questions at the end of chapter 6 are probably asked under the sun. Uh, That is the phrase we've seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which refers to the mentality and the perspective of people who do not regard God. These questions are asked without faith in God. So they're they're probably at the end of chapter 6 answered with this hopeless resignation. What is good? There's nothing good. Obviously, we've seen it over and over in Ecclesiastes. And who knows what will be after man? No one knows. And yet the preacher, Solomon, answers both questions in the rest of the passage. What is good is answered by the poem we see in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Because the word better that was repeated over and over is actually the same word as good. This is Solomon answering what is good. And the question, who knows, is answered in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Did you see the repetition of the word consider a who? Who knows? Consider God. So that's the passage. And let me give you just one simple answer to both questions. Facing death in Christ is better than feasting. Without fear. That is the passage in a sentence. Facing death in Christ is better than feasting without fear. Point number one, what is good? It's answered in chapter 7, 1 through 12. Now, I have only one really hip pastor friend. Um, I'm thankful to have one really hip pastor friend. He uses a little app called Marco Polo. And the other day he sent me a, a polo or a Marco or whatever they call it. And, and he, it's just his face on there. And he says, hey, Bishop, what's good? What's good? Um, my translation, because I'm less hip, and of the question, what's good, is my friend is asking me, tell me how you've been, but skip all the bummers. Well... To that question, I didn't even return the call. Um, uh, I'm not going to skip all the bummers. I was having an under-the-sun kind of minute, as they say. But this is the the moment in the book of Ecclesiastes where all the bummers have been rehearsed. All the the relationships in your life, you know they will fail you, Solomon says. All the achievements you make, they will leave you empty. All of your life will be filled with pain, the preacher says. And now he's going to answer a question to the one who is tempted at this point to give up. What is good? And I believe this is the main question of our passage because... The word good is repeated over and over in the word better in this long poem. And when you read better as good and you hear good, 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 good. I wonder if that rings a bell to an earlier passage in Scripture. Like a really early passage in Scripture where over and over God says, let there be, and it was good. Where over and over we're told the repetition of the word day, the first day, the second day, the third day, that 
word also is repeated over and over in our passage. But notice verse 1 says, there's a day of death. And verse 14 says, there's a day of adversity. In other words, and, and you need to understand this, this is a big part of what this is communicating. This poem is saying, we are living in a different day than was created initially. You better get real about what you can expect out of this kind of world. Where good back then, it ain't good anymore. There is a different definition for good now. Now, confession, if you had told me in seminary, and I'm training for pastoral ministry, Ryan, one day in a sermon, you will be so desperate that you will give an illustration from Disney's Descendants, this childhood movie for little girls. Uh, I would have found that hard to believe. If you told me you will do it a second time just a few weeks later, I probably would have quit the whole thing and found something better to do with my life. But here we go. When the kids of the villains in Disney's stories transfer to this good prep school... Uh, where all the squeaky clean kids are, there's this joke that they have to have a new class for these new, you know, villain kids. And it's called remedial goodness. They have to teach these people who only know evil what is good. And so in this class, Fairy Godmother is their version of Pastor Solomon. Uh, Fairy Godmother gives them a question and says, if you find a bottle of milk, do you, A... Poison it. And some of them start raising their hands. B, break it, steal it. Or C, give it to a baby. And one character raises their hand and says, C, give it to a baby. And they're all, the other ones are totally shocked. How do you keep getting these answers right? And the answer is, it's easy. You just pick the one that sounds like no fun. Look back at our passage. What does God say is good for your life right now and the choices you make and the plans you make and the invitations you accept? Well, it's four things you would not think is very fun. And he says, if you're wise, you will do it. I hope that struck you when I said that this sermon in a sentence is facing death is better than feasting. So, first bewildering better comes in verses 1 through 4 where he says funerals are better than frat parties. Four related goods come in these first four verses. Look in verse 1. He says reputation is better than riches. In other words, if you, if you will listen carefully to my words, if you choose the better options that you would not expect then, then you may not be able to afford this, uh, afford this precious ointment or perfume, but you will die with a good name. You will reach the end of your life and you will have an honorable reputation. Death is the focus of these comparisons. You see it at the end of verse 
one, the day of death is better than the day of birth. You understand what he's saying? How much we just rejoice and long for the day of someone's birth. He says, well, the day of someone's death is actually more of an advantage for you to be aware of. Verse 2. Why are funerals gooder than frat parties? Look, for this, a funeral is the end of all mankind. And those who are still alive when they're at the funeral will learn that lesson here. In other words, funerals preach a sermon you've got to keep hearing. And that sermon says, you've got a casket. There is an enemy stalking each one of us, and he's going to get us. It's better than to go to the funeral, than to go to the party, because at the funeral, you will get what the party won't give you. you will, you'll be waked up. The, the, the living will take it to heart. There's at a funeral, you'll be encouraged to actually ask a question. You need to consider, how am I going to live? I just have a few days until my funeral. In other words, a funeral will encourage you to consider the questions that are poor form at every party. The kinds of topics that if you bring them up at a party, they will quickly all leave you. Because they don't want anything to do with those kinds of questions. Listen, a telltale sign of a fool, according to Ecclesiastes. The the person who doesn't live for God and without with any kind of regard for God. If you want to know what they're like, their theme song is Hakuna Matata. It's the kind of person who approaches life and avoids everything that's hard doesn't talk about those things. They have no worries. They just want to be happy. And so they're famous for frequenting frat parties. Listen. Because the party is the closest they'll ever get to what they're imagining heaven is. It's about escaping everything that's hard. It's about getting intoxicated so we can't think straight and face the truth. It's about pleasure and laughing. It hides the truth that God wants you and me to think about all the time. And that is that we are all going to die and we will face God. And listen... In a town like this, I don't just need to talk about frat parties. Because you may be hearing, I haven't been to a frat party in decades. Birthday parties. Church socials. A certain kind of group. I mean, you can go to certain churches and not hear much about God. You can go to church socials and be around people who might be better friends in the sense that they're moral and they're keeping their life together, they're good influences in that way, but they don't ask me all that much about what really matters. Oh, you can do that. 
and be a fool. Verse 3 and 4 give us another good. Good is sorrow and not laughter. For, look at the text, sad faces make glad hearts. The heart in the Bible is the control center of your life. It is the location of motivation and emotion. And, and Pastor Solomon is saying to us, if you want the organ that directs your soul, that directs all of you, if you want to be glad, if you want to be glad and not sad, if you want that joyful, deep and abiding satisfaction of soul, if you want something more than merely being happy on Saturday nights with your friends, then this is what you need. You need to face death. You need to face the truth that this world is not the way it should be. It's not the way God made it in Genesis 1. What's good for us now has been totally redefined since sin has infected everything and the world is dying. You need to face the fact that sin causes pain in your life and others. And it ruins relationships. And so we go to funerals and we wonder, why is his daughter not here? Experiencing sadness will make you wise to want a life that this life can't give you. To want a world beyond this world and will cause you to then live a life where you fill it with what is actually good. But then verses 5 through 7, look there, we get a second bewildering better. We're not expecting for him to say this, that correction is better than karaoke. Verse 7 is just some more kind of reality or foolishness and, and, and how uh, uh, bribes will make you bitter. But, but this is mainly about verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. If you were to burn thorns, you'd be quickly encouraged because they would crackle. They would give you the kind of sound you're looking for when you're starting a fire. They would do it so quickly. But Solomon says there's no way it's going to warm your chili because twigs are too small to fuel what you need, so is the laughter of fools. The laughter. So imagine karaoke night, and all the fools take the stage, and your friend's trying to be Whitney or Beyonce or whatever, and it's just hilarious. Just understand all that hilarity will end once the song does. That's what he's saying. 
And your life will be empty if laughter is what your goal is. But being rebuked. And I can tell you as a pastor, uh, I haven't yet had anyone come to me and talk about how eager they are to be told they're wrong. And, and, and they're especially not eager to say, hey, would you come and tell me that I'm wrong about the really important things to me? But Solomon says, being rebuked will keep your chili hot and will keep your chili yummy. It will, it will sustain your soul. It's correction that actually gives you life. You would never guess that. It's the thing you try to avoid. It's the relationships you end and stop listening to people. But it says correction will give you life. Because here's the truth. If you will face the fact that you're going to die, then you've got to come face to face with reality that it's not just this world that has gone wrong. You have gone wrong. You are going astray. And I am going astray from the ways of God at different times in our life. And being rebuked by the wise is what we need. Listen, this is not an invitation for those critical people out there who nitpick and find something wrong with everyone. It's not what he's talking about. A key part of the phrase, the rebuke by the wise, is the the words, the wise. It's the rebuke of those people. And in Ecclesiastes, that's defined by a person who fears God, who brings God into his mind and consideration, who's not ignoring the truth that God speaks and acting like this is all there is. It's someone who knows the Bible. And if you're rebuked by someone who is giving you the word of God, then you will be blessed have good. This is the way Jesus puts it. Why do you think Jesus says in Matthew 18, the good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 to go and rescue the one. And right after that, he says, and if someone has sinned against you, you go to them. Why? Mark it down. God conforms his people through the correction of his people. You want God to correct you. I just want God to do it. Can you just do it privately in prayer or something like that? I just want God to do it privately. You know, my spirit, just give me. God corrects his people, or God conforms his people through the correction of his people, delivered by his people. Listen, do you want to know a real test? For how far you've come as a Christian. You want to know when that is shown? It is when a righteous person tells you no. That's the measure of maturity and wisdom. It's your response. And whether you'll listen or excuse and deflect and accuse... When a righteous person says, no, we're not doing that. You shouldn't do that. So if the closest people in your life are not aware of your weaknesses. Or you've gathered the closest people in your life around you because they're afraid. They're afraid to tell you 
your weaknesses. Well, you're in trouble. Here is how my kids like to put it. Hey, diddle, diddle, right down the middle. Here is the truth of this passage right here. Do you want to be right? Or would you rather be righteous? You will not be both. This week, tell two members of this church, go up to them and say, please ask me questions about my sin. Please rebuke me. Please show me out of the Bible. Not just don't nitpick. Please don't discourage me. But show me out of the Bible ways that I'm falling short as a parent. Ways that I'm falling short in my marriage. Ways that I'm not honoring the Lord in my work. And I want you especially talking to me about ways I'm going wrong when I'm suffering and when I'm sad. Because it's in trials God says that true faith comes out. Please don't ignore me in my trial. Ask me then and correct me. Let's do these last two betters quickly. Third bewildering better comes in chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. The end is better than the beginning. Don't just chase new beginnings. Because the end of something is actually better than the beginning. If you just chase new beginnings, you're a fool. Because fools love what's new. But the wise are patient. They're tempted toward anger, but they're slow to it. Because they're waiting on God. The fourth bewildering better comes in 7, 11, and 12. Wisdom is greater than wealth. We've seen this over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, basically, don't just hope for an inheritance. If I just get an inheritance, that will preserve my life because I'll have money to get the things that that will make my life longer and protect me from things. No, he says wisdom is actually what will preserve your soul. And inheritance, money, is just a bonus. So hope for Wisdom with an inheritance, that's better. Facing death in Christ is better than feasting. Without fear, feasting, without consideration of God, feasting and forgetting the truth of that this world is not the way that it should be. A person who chase, chases feasts finds their life in a world that is dying. So just wake up. Remember the, the, the people of Israel, Solomon's people, they were studying the book of Ecclesiastes, especially at a feast. Isn't that telling? During the Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyous feast of the year, they gathered together and they opened up Ecclesiastes. Isn't that telling? In other words, do not let all this food make you think you will live forever. Do not let feasting make a fool out of you. You better fear God because laughter simply cannot last. What is good? What is good for you? You've got choices. You're going to RSVP 
for certain things and turn down other things. You've got choices of how you spend your life. You and I. If you've been planning your best friend's surprise 40th birthday party and it's coming this Saturday and your distant uncle who you didn't like all that much passes away and his funeral is scheduled at the same time. The casket is a crystal ball. You better go to that funeral. Because that casket will tell you what's coming. Beloved, RSVP for relationships and RSVP for events that will help you think the most about God. And meeting him. Point number two. Solomon answers the question not only what is good, but who knows? Who knows? The way it's phrased back in chapter 6 verse 12 is, how can we be sure that that anything is an advantage to us? How, How can we be sure that what we think is good is actually good? Who can tell man? Well, if you only live under the sun and you don't have God, no one can tell you. You'll answer those questions and you'll be completely wrong. And then we get to chapter 7 and verse 13. It says, consider the work of God. And then we get to verse 14. There's a day of prosperity and you should be joyful when God gives you those days of prosperity. And in the day of adversity, you should consider you didn't make your prosperity. You didn't make your adversity. God made them. He's the maker of Genesis 1 and he's making your days still. And he does it in such a way that you will not find out anything that will be after him. You don't know how long that day of prosperity is lasting. And it's not true. You can't tell the day of adversity is going to last forever. You can't tell. You don't know. You should consider God. He's the one who knows. So there's an explosion in Beirut. And I'm grateful that there's so much attention being drawn now to child trafficking. The wicked evil that happens in this world to to, uh, populate parties with children who can be used for pleasure. That's this world. And you go to some of these funerals and the caskets are tiny. So the world looks at that and they ask what is known as the problem of evil. You see, people get distracted in seeing those things. And they say, don't tell me there's a good God in this world if that happens. Don't tell me there is actually a God who's powerful if I just keep on going to these things and keep seeing These things, they use the problem of evil to excuse their lack of following the God of the Bible. I want you to consider that those events are not actually arguments against the the 
goodness of God, they are arguments proving that this world has gone wrong. Isn't it also interesting that Solomon is not saying you need to consider the problem of evil. Isn't the whole passage about the problem of good? That good is the opposite of what you would think. Why is good so problematic and counterintuitive? Or you could use the word of verse 13. Crooked. For who can make straight? Who made this world full of contradictions? Who's ruling over it? What He, God, has made crooked. Deal with that. Face this reality. In response to all the bewildering betters, He says, consider this is the work of God. He has made this crooked. You think you can make it straight? I want you to hear the good news of this truth. The reason the problem of good is such good news is because the world is crooked because God is good. It's not because He's not good. It's not because He's not powerful. It's because He told us After making the good world, the very next chapter, if you sin, it will all be broken. And then one chapter later, they sin. Consider, there is one who keeps this world crooked. And consider, you cannot overcome him. You cannot make straight because He made a promise. This world is crooked because God is keeping His Word. I will curse this world if you will not live with me as God. And you can't fix it by having fun. Verse 14. You cannot make your days. Try all you want to make a day of prosperity. Make a day of... Never make a day of adversity. God is the one. So he's asking this question, who knows? You pour your life into getting something and it just all goes away. You pour your life into making a bunch of money. It's just handed to a a fool or it's lost in a bad venture. Who knows what will come after you? And he's begging, he's, 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 he's prompting us to see reality. You don't know. I don't know. They do not know. Who knows what will be after? Only God. So consider God while you're still alive. If the crookedness of the world is going to be fixed, it cannot be fixed by anyone in that world. There's a man who wrote a book called Waiting for Superman. And he said this, even in the ghetto where he grew up, everyone just thought Superman's coming. 
Superman always shows up no matter how many problems we have. And he will save all the good people. And then he says, one of the saddest days of my life was when my mother told me Superman doesn't exist. And she thought I was crying for the same reason I cried when I heard that Santa doesn't exist. I was crying when she told me Superman doesn't exist. Because then I realized there's no one coming with enough power to save us. The wisdom of Solomon begs the question, who can make this world good again? And the people of faith ask the question, who can straighten out all the crooked parts of my heart? I have chased sin. I have hurt people in order to get pleasure. I have ignored God. I haven't thanked Him. Is there anyone who can turn my sad face and make my heart glad when what I'm devastated by is my own guilt? Consider Christ. Consider the Son of David, who is the Son of God. What is God's good answer to a crooked world? Well, it will sound a bit counterintuitive. It could seem even crooked. Who can save me from God? When it's Him that I owe, I can make straight my crooked heart. Who can save me from His judgment after my debt? Only God can. Who can take condemned men and condemned women and condemned children and take the place of them? Well, it may be shocking, but only an innocent one who doesn't deserve condemnation. Fools gather together and commit an evil and an injustice on a Friday, and nail an innocent man to a cross in the name of justice, in the name of righteousness, God, in that moment, is pouring out His anger on this one. They think it's because of the same reasons they want Him dead, but He's pouring out His anger to take the place of everyone else who would believe in Him. And at the same moment, something else is happening. God, it says, was pleased to crush him. He's pleased with his son, willingly taking all of our punishment on the cross. So that he can give us an eternal inheritance in exchange for eternal damnation. So he can cause people to face death without any fear. Because all the sting was taken by the son. This is the gospel. There is, think about it, only a cross, only a cross could fix the crooked. Only a resurrection could wake fools up to God because when God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him life and ascended him into heaven, Jesus is now powerfully ruling over this world and saving people, raising them from spiritual death. So Pastor Solomon in all of these quests in the book of Ecclesiastes, has been in our passage on a quest for good. What is good? Can we find good anywhere in this world? 
and he makes us look at feasts, and he makes us look at funerals. And isn't it interesting that when the Bible ends, did you hear it from Revelation 19? There will be two feasts. There will be one that is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be another called the supper of God. And at the supper of God, did you hear it? There will be wine. It will be made by the blood of those who do not love Jesus. And there will be food where the birds of Christ will eat the flesh of everyone who did not trust God. Face the truth. And if you are not living for Christ, know that He can take all the sting of it and all the fear of it away if you'll turn from your sin and trust Him. And beloved, the good news for us is that's not the feast we have coming toward us. You choose the funeral. You go to the funeral for the rest of your life. Knowing that the God who cursed sinners became a curse to save us. And knowing that He has promised you will weep when the world rejoices. You will be sorrowful but I will turn your sorrow into joy and no one will take it from you. There is a feast coming for us when our groom comes for us and we enjoy him forever and ever. Until then, face death. It's better than feasting without fear. Oh God, we come to you and pray that we would rejoice and exult and give You glory for the marriage of the Lamb who was slain in our place and the bride who You have made us out of crooked souls. You've made us Your bride. You will bring us to Yourself and You will clothe us with fine linen, bright and pure, the righteous deeds of those who love Christ. May we not trade it for a terrible bargain of fleeting laughter and joy in this life. Oh God, make us hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.